You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have a great guest today, Corrado Spalafora. He's with the Institute of Translational Pharmacology, the Italian National Research Council. Uh, he has a laboratory that discovered that mature sperm cells uh, come from a variety of species, share the ability to spontaneously take up DNA from outside themselves. It's called exogenous DNA molecules and deliver them to oocytes at fertilization. So we'll talk more about that because that sounds uh, very interesting. So Corrado, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. So um, what got you into studying, um, I guess, maybe conception or sperm and egg dynamics? Well, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, um, it's a quite old story. It started many years ago when um, I was, I, I mean, I always been interested in uh, in fertilization uh, you know the combination of the two gametes that generate a, a new life mm -hmm. and uh, i spent many years uh, studying the chromatin the, the nuclear organization of the sperm head and uh, at that time i was using a very popular technique that was to uh, uh, expose to prepare nuclei for sperm and then expose this nuclei to a nuclease that cleaves the DNA. And this mm. would cleave the exposed DNA, but would preserve the DNA that is complex with protein, uh, nuclear protein. So that could give a map, uh, an organization map, uh, a map of how the, the chromatin in the sperm head is organized. And uh, So, so uh, can, you, can you repeat that a little bit? So you yes. uh, did, did something to the sperm to what, to reveal how the DNA is organized in the sperm head? Or was there more detail than that? We reveal the chromatin organization, how the DNA is organized in the sperm head. You know that the sperm, it's a very, very small uh, uh, cell, and the DNA is very compact inside this. So one way to, to, to characterize how the DNA is organized with the, with, the, with the protein inside the sperm is to isolate the nuclei the sperm nuclei, so from the head sperm, you know that the sperm is made by a head and the long tail, and the and the nuclei is the uh, all the DNA it's it's contained in the nuclei of the of the sperm. So we isolate this nuclei and expose this nuclei to a nuclease. The nuclease is an enzyme that cleaves the DNA and gotcha. cleaves the DNA when the DNA is exposed. But if the DNA is complex with protein then the nuclease would not be able to cleave the DNA. So we can discriminate between the, the exposed part of the DNA and the protected part of it. And this could uh, give us a kind of map 
how the DNA is organized in the sperm. Is this clear? Yeah, is it organized very differently than in our normal somatic cells? What did you notice? Well, we didn't know that at that time. So that's what we wanted to know. Exactly, exactly what we wanted to. Uh, it is very well. It is very differently organized because it's very packed. It's a very small nuclei compared to the nuclei of normal cells. So the DNA is much more packed in the in the sperm head than in normal. So we we what, what are the what are the relative sizes? Of the it's it's half the material right, but it's it, what it, size is the nucleus of the sperm compared to a normal cell? The the DNA it's is the same amount it's exactly, but it's much more packed. It's uh, it's about uh, uh, I don't know it's uh, about fifty times smaller. It's very smaller. It's much smaller than the normal the size of the normal. So then oh, we ex- okay. we extract the DNA after the, the digestion of this nucleus. And we analyze this DNA in an electrophoretic analysis. You know, we run in an electrophoretic gel to see how the DNA has been fragmented. And, uh, and this was the method to which we wanted to know, to learn more about uh, the chromatin organization. And uh, okay. once we, we just uh, occasionally we found that uh, if, uh, if you expose the, the swimming sperm to the, to the, to, to the nucleus, then the sperm immediately die in a few seconds. And if we, we, when we extract the DNA from this sperm head, we saw that the DNA has been degraded. So in other words, you don't need to, expo- to prepare the nuclei and to expose the nuclei to the, to the nucleus. Well, you simply have the, the suspension with the swimming living sperm. You add the nuclease, and the nuclease will penetrate in the sperm head and cleave the DNA. And so that was a very unexpected result it was not uh, it was done uh, it was not done on purpose it, it was just observed occasionally and but it was a very uh, significant because it means that the the sperm although it's highly packed has an access which connect the inside of the sperm with the external environment is this clear so okay um is it clear so okay? this so so what does this tell you about the sperm that it can react to outside stimuli? It can change it how it packs the DNA. What, what does this tell you? That there is a connection between the, the external environment and the, the inside of the of the sperm head, which is not normal. I mean, it's not expected because a sperm is considered as a piece of rock, uh, not as a permeable uh, structure. So when we saw that. We thought that if a nuclease can penetrate spontaneously in a sperm, also a piece of DNA could do the same. And we test that, and we found that, in fact, that the exogenous DNA can be taken up by the sperm and internalized in the sperm head. So in this sense, uh, we thought that uh, then the, sperm, the spermatozoa can be used as vectors, not only of their own uh, uh, genomic DNA, but also of exogenous DNA. So we, we uh, that was a really turning point because the, the whole new uh, field was the resulting. So we start to, you know, we were working with, uh, with mice. So we were preparing a sperm from, from mice. We incubated the sperm with, uh, with the DNA in a test tube. And then we fertilized in vitro. We fertilized in ovos. And then we looked if this, uh, the DNA that was incubated with the spermatozoa was delivered to the ovocyte or to the embryos. 
And the answer was yes. We found that uh, this DNA that was uh, uh, incubated with the sperm in vitro was uh, uh, delivered to the to the embryo through the fertilization. So the the the, the newly formed uh, embryos contained the DNA that was originally incubated. Uh, you know. The, How did you um? What what does the membrane of the sperm look like? How is it different from a normal cell membrane? Well, Have you characterized it. No, we did not. I mean, that's you know, this is all. This is very well known. Uh, I'm not an expert in in membrane, but it, I mean, the sperm has a membrane, but obviously it has some pore, some holes that allow the 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 exogenous molecule to get in spontaneously without any special treatment. How did you know that the, like, what was the DNA that was exogenous to the sperm? Was it tagged? How did you know that it was going to, you know, that it, how would you know it would show up later? We use all different type of of, uh, tests for that. We use label DNA, radioactive label DNA, uh, fluorescent label DNA. And then uh, it was, you know, it was specific piece of DNA. It was, we use a plasmid. So we knew the, the, the sequence of this DNA. And then uh, we, we, we isolated both the sperm and the embryos, and we, we made section of these uh, 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 cells, and then hybridized with a, with a complementary probe uh, just to see if this, uh, the complementary probe would recognize the, the sequence, the complementary sequence. That we found the sequences inside the sperm and inside the, the, uh, the embryos. So there was no doubt that this, uh, this uh, sequences were taken off, internalized in the sperm, and delivered from the sperm to, to the embryo. So then uh, we we mm. grow the animals from this uh, from this embryos, and uh, uh, and then uh, when the animal was born, we what we what usually it's done. You cut the, the the terminal piece of the of the tail of the animal, extract the DNA, and look. You found again. The original DNA that was uh, um, incubated with sperm, and in fact, we found it. And uh, so, these animals received so this uh, the sequences, this exogenous that were maintained throughout the embryonic development, and were finally inherited in the tissue of the born animals. Now, um, quick question: where, where do you think, in the journey of the sperm, that it has a chance? To pick up this DNA, is it after? Is it while the sperm is swimming through the mother to the oocyte? Maybe it's maybe the no. oocyte itself gives off no. DNA and uh, the sperm pick it up. I don't know. The the the, the oocyte doesn't doesn't see the DNA. The DNA, it's, uh, the exogenous DNA, it's only incubated with the sperm in a separate tube. After the this incubation. No, but in, in real life, in real life, where I know how you did it, but okay. where does it? Where would, where could it happen in real life? This is a totally different uh, um, aspect. Yes, uh, uh, the only po- well, I will come to this. Uh, what we found that you know that one implication of this of this finding is that if the sperm is so accessible, that's make a, a, it's very dangerous because it could take up any kind of sequence from the environment and deliver it to the to the fertilization to the oocyte, and this would compromise. That could compromise the genetic identity of the of the of the growing embryo, but this does not happen because when the sperm is ejaculated, the the seminal fluid is a contain a kind of plug that 
that block this, this holes. It is a, a glycoprotein that stick to the, to the sperm surface and prevent the interaction with the exogenous. So this looks as uh, nature is aware of the fact that uh, uh, sperm, exposed sperm, could be dangerous. So when the sperm is, uh, is in the tididimus, in the body of the male, it's in the safer side and it's all right. But when the sperm is ejaculated, it's exposed in the, in the environment or in the case of mammals, in the, in the female genital tract, where it could, could take up, in a, as we said, could take up uh, uh, foreign sequences. But this does not happen because the, the, the seminal fluid that contains this uh, inhibitory factor uh, prevent the interaction of, of it. So the only possibility for the sperm to take up uh, an exogenous molecule is when the sperm is inside the, the epididymis, the male epididymis. And this is what really happened uh, in transgenerational inheritance because, uh, uh, as you know, the, the tissue that are exposed to present condition, they release uh, um, extracellular vesicles that contain all different kinds of information, DNA, RNA, proteins, and most of this uh, information are uh, uh, stimulated in response to specific stressing conditions, like could be any physical stress or uh, environmental stress or pathologies. And this information in the, in the form of RNA are packed in, the, in, the, in this uh, extracellular vesicle, like uh, exosomes. They are released from the tissue. They are released in the, in the, in the circulating blood and uh, uh, are reached the epididymis and they are taken up by the sperm. And then, then the sperm deliver this, uh, this, uh, all this packed information to the next generation through the fertilizer. So that's the only... But does, how, how long are the sperm residents in the epididymis? I, I would think not long. So not long. No, no, would, no. Yeah. But there is a continuous uh, you know, uh, regeneration of, of embryos, of, of uh, sperm. I think uh, sperm, it's something like um, 20 or 30 days, the, the life of the sperm in the epididymis. But it's continuously reproduced. So you, there is a continuous new production of spermatozoa, so they are always there. So when the, the, if there is a wave of, of, of um, extracellular vesicle containing uh, somatic information, which they produce, there are always sperm able to take up this information. And if, uh, uh, I mean, if, uh, if uh, involved in a fertilization process, they have the potential to deliver this to the the embryos. Uh, we have shown that, you know, in a, in a quite simple way, we have uh, inoculated uh, uh, cancer, uh, human cancer cell, melanoma human uh, cell uh, that express uh, a reported gene, a GFP, uh, green fluorescent protein. So this uh, produces an RNA that it's coding from this protein, that's protein becomes green, and you can see it, it's cell green. And so the idea is. We inoculated this uh, uh, cancer cell into subcutaneously in a, in, a, in a mice. And this is a, is a cancer cell that delivers a lot of this uh, extracellular vesicle containing the RNA, including this uh, P coding RNA. If this uh, uh, extracellular vesicle are released from the cancer throughout the body of the, of the animal, could this uh, reach the epididymis? And in this case, we could use the the uh, the GFP as a tracer 
to see if the epididymis has really obtained, received this information. So we inoculated this, uh, this, uh, this cancer cell. We waited 45 days when the tumor was visible. You can touch it. Then we sacrificed the animal and we, um, and we uh, isolated the, the sperm from this animal. And we looked for the RNA of this. And we found that this RNA uh, was containing the sperm, the EGFP RNA, the cortigene RNA, that it's not producing the body of the, of the, of the mice, uh, was present in the sperm. So that means that the, 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 the extracellular vesicle were released from the, from the, from the tumor, releasing the, in the um, circulating blood, they cross the Weissmann barrier. You know, this is this uh, metaphoric barrier that uh, separates the, the somatic uh, context of a body from to the uh, to the germ to the germline. So they cross this barrier. They reach the epidermis, and they were taken up by the epidermis. And then, well, uh, uh, okay, okay, go ahead. Why? Why couldn't? Um, why? I, I imagine that the. Um... The seminal fluid, the ejaculate that accompanies the sperm, would probably be a temporary shield. Once they're inside the female, though, I would think that that would be stripped away, and the sperm would be exposed to uh, potentially taking in DNA once they're inside the uh, female, once they've been ejaculated. Did yes. you did you look for any evidence that it could happen there? Well, no, we didn't look, but we since this, uh, you know, it's not the the fluid. Per se, that has a, a protective uh, effect. It's, it's a glycoprotein. It's a component of it. It is binding. It's sticking to the substrate where the DNA is supposed to bind. And when this place is it, it, it's, uh, it's occupied by this uh, uh, inhibitory factor, just sticking there, it's sticking on the surface of the so it prevents anyway the the, the binding of the DNA, even if the fluid. The, the non-solid part of the of the of the seminal fluid is lost because you are right. I mean, when the when the sperm is going through the, the the female genital tract, of course the fluid is lost, but not this molecule, this inhibitory molecule, binding on the surface of it. So this is a. So you you've observed that? Have you ever tried to have sperm that have survived most of the passage to, through the genital tract or all the way to the oocyte and then sampled them to see? If the glycoprotein is still binding to them, no, we didn't do that. No, we we fractionate the seminal fluid, and we found that we, we identified this protein. But we, I mean, the, it, the implication, the clear implication, is that this protein it's sticking uh, on the on the surface of the sperm as soon as the sperm is is uh, is ejaculated. You know, the sperm and the seminal fluid come together immediately. When the uh, with ejaculation, so immediately as soon as the uh, the, uh, the the sperm come out from the epididymis, would be mixed with the, the seminal fluid and would take off this uh, this inhibitor. So it's protected throughout the, the way through the epididymis. Is it a permanent binding between the glycoprotein and the sperm head, or maybe there are certain chemicals that would undo it and unglue it? You know, I'm just thinking, and this is pure speculation. Yeah. Once the what if the oocyte puts out exosomes or other material that strip the glycoproteins off the sperm, but only in the presence of the oocyte? Maybe it creates its own microenvironment that affects the sperm that have gotten to it. Who knows how? But I'm asking if you know anything about that. 
Oh, I don't know anything. I mean, we have the evidence that when uh, uh, sperm are, uh, if you if you uh, take the epididymal sperm that are fully permeable, you incubate them an increasing amount of all this glycoprotein. Permeability is totally lost; it's deleted. You can incubate it, then the, the the sperm with a large amount of any kind of any concentration, but no DNA foreign DNA. It's impossible. So, but is there anything that would strip away the glycoprotein from the sperm head? Yes. Is there anything identified that would do this? What would it be? You can compete out this molecule, but this is done in you know in artificial condition. It's an experiment. Uh, you can, for instance, compete uh, this uh, the binding of this uh, factor with uh, with heparin, which is uh, a very strong uh, um, charge molecule. But this again, you, you don't find this large amount of heparin in the in the image. I don't even know, know if you find trace of it. But this is again, it's something that we have done in the lab in artificial condition. In artificial condition, you can, you can uh, remove this binding, you can uh, antagonize it. Okay. But I mean, it's, uh, so why 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 do you think that the sperm go through a time of vulnerability in the epididymis? Why what would be the purpose of leaving them exposed for a period of time? Why do you think that happens? The purpose is exactly to take off the information that are coming from this uh, from the stress uh, from the, from the soma. Exactly what uh, this experiment with the with the cancer cell inoculated in the in the, in the animal tells us. So it's a, a sperm. It's collect not only the the, the genomic information that are um, in, uh, that are um, contained in the chromosome, but contain uh, also another subtle uh, kind of information, what we call the epigenetic, in the form of RNA or in the form of, of uh, variation of the chromatin, uh, alteration of the marks, the epigenetic marks, like the methylation, instance. and this is. Uh, it's it's coming from uh, the epigenetic from the somatic. So if the soma is uh, exposed to some stressing condition, it release this kind of information. This kind of information reach the spermatozoa. They are taken up in the soil and they are delivered. In in my personal opinion, on purpose because it, it contributes to the adapt the 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 newly uh, uh, generated embryos and then the newly uh, the child that will be generated uh, from this embryo adapt it bones already adapted to the condition that you will find in the in the uh, after birth in the environment so if the the parents are exposed to some special condition which stimulate or exposed to stress the some organs or some part of the body that this information will be transmitted in this way on a on a, an RNA based information to the sperm and the sperm will deliver further to the to the embryo. So the embryo will already have an information that would in principle again this is a it's hypothetical, it's a, it's a, it's a possibility, it's not true. Uh, it, it, this would uh, uh, cause the, the adaptation of the embryo already to the condition that you will find in the in the environment of birth. So it has uh, in my view this has a specific uh, Evolutionary uh, reason, adaptation. But since sperm don't live very long, why would they need to, again, go through this period of time where they're exposed? I mean, it doesn't seem like they would need an update 
no, of think... DNA. Why why would they want to why would the organism want to possibly jeopardize unless it could improve the the I don't know, the survivability of the sperm? Why would it want to expose them for such a short period of time and possibly uh expose them to negative type, you know, changes to their uh, DNA? I mean the the the, so the time of survival of the sperm is not relevant because it, you have a continuous production. So you always have a set of sperm in the epididymis ready to get this uh, extra chromosome always. Uh, then this, uh, this information would, uh, um, how do you say, would prepare the, the, the embryos, the newly formed to the condition that we found in the, in the, after birth, in the environment where you, uh, so it, it's a, you already, Organize the, the newly formed body to to be exposed to the stressing condition found. I don't know if this is clear or not. So it's a in our view, it's a pure evolutionary reason why this happened. So there is this window in the epididymis where the sperm is permeable, permeable to what the information that are coming from the from the environment. So he accepts information from the environment and deliver this information to the newly born child. So the newly born child not only has the, the, the basic genomic information, but he also has, or she also has, an additional extra chromosomal information that uh, prepare the embryo to the environmental birth. So and, what, yeah, what, what, what do you guess would be, I mean, what information would be useful for the, you know, for the father to incorporate into the sperm at this point? Well, why not know, incorporate it earlier? Why have a period where you know, why have this window? It, it doesn't really make sense. No, because it depends on the environment. It's not a, it's not a, a pre-organized situation. If the parents are exposed to some special stressing condition, then this will be also inherited by the by the children. That's all. If, the, if this doesn't happen, if the parents are not exposed to anything, then then this. This delivery probably will not happen, but it, it entirely depends from the from the environment, from the uh, style, uh, the living style of the of the parents or of the father. So there is that there are also very bad uh, consequences of that. Uh, you know that, that now it's it's known that there are uh, many diseases that are uh, can be inherited by. I mean, not really inherited in the genetic sense, but. Uh, predispose the children to the to some disease like you know a lot of metabolic disease like uh, diabetes or obesity or also hypertension that depends very much from the from the type of style of the life of the father or it mean could reflect uh, environmental conditions pollution or, or in the context could, could, could also reflect the good things of the good food a healthy life or whatever but that means that the the the, the the, the lifestyle of the parent it continues is reflected in the life of the father, and this is not only for so the perhaps uh, yeah perhaps a good practice would be if you want to have children and you're a guy is at least thirty days before you want to start trying to make sure you don't smoke and you eat well and you do the right thing so that your uh, your kids aren't messed up well I, I don't know if it is exactly in this in this way because uh, uh, I don't know if you can cancel in the in the cell the effect that you produce for years of for you know drinking or smoking or whatever. So probably you know it's a it's a cumulative effect. 
So I don't think that 30 days would be enough to, to cancel that. You know, you know very well that uh, if uh, uh, smokers, heavy smokers, need years to get them into go back to the probably they will never go back to the original condition even if they stop smoking. But for many years, it's the, it doesn't really make a difference whether you smoke or not. I think after... Well, it would probably be a good start, at least, if not uh, ideal. I think one should have, in general, should have uh, uh, should avoid the non-healthy condition, or healthy world, not only for your own, but for uh, special producers. I mean, that's a, that's a now it's clear that this is a responsibility of, uh, of the parents. And what I'm saying, all this data that I'm telling you now, that, that it's not my, not my reporting uh, literature. Our findings just uh, sperm behavior. But all this uh, genetic involvement, transgenerational involvement, inheritance, transgenerational inheritance of this uh, disease and, uh, and uh, lifestyle and personal behavior, it's how uh, they're available in the literature. So, so what does all this tell you? What, what do you... What can we do about the fact that uh, sperm can take in, you know, exogenous DNA? What does that tell us to do? Or what, what, what's next in your research? Well, no, we have, uh, I have to say, we, we are not really involved in the, in the medical aspect. Of, uh, we focus essentially, our interest in was focused uh, evolutionary interpretation because uh, we think that uh, it's information that uh, which the epidemics is uh, is uh, diverge enough from the normal genetic background of the uniform of the embryo. It could uh, introduce a, a, a lot of new information which are not the, the one that usually have the embryo, and could generate uh, uh, novelties with uh, uh, application relevance. And uh, I mean, again, I'm extrapolating in a hypothetical model. If this RNA, that this uh, this wave of RNA that delivered to the embryos at the fertilization is strong enough, it could generate uh, um, the divergent, an ontogenic divergent of the, uh, it could change the developing trajectory of the embryo and generate something. So we think that uh, the hypothesis, the formation of new um, species could come in this way. If the, if the environmental conditions are strong, and if this uh, stressing condition are very strong, and therefore the, the amount and the quality and the nature of this uh, uh, RNA that reached the it's very significant, it's very different, then it could, in principle, have the power to redirect the development. Of course, you know, a, a big question I forgot to ask you is, have you sequenced the DNA of a sperm before and after it was exposed to the DNA you gave it? And was the underlying sequence different after the exposure, or was it an epigenetic change? Uh, I'm afraid I didn't understand the question well. Well, you, you said that you've uh, exposed sperm to a specific amount of DNA, and you saw that was incorporated when they, you know, when the children were born. The, the, you know, in mice. So did the sperm take in the DNA and change its underlying structure? Did it just take in the DNA as an extra set of coding genes? Did it experience instead an epigenetic change? It, it, you know, it how a, was the sperm changed? It was a pure epigenetic. This, this DNA that was taken off is not integrated in the is not integrated in the sperm genome, is not integrated in embryonic genome, and finally is not integrated in the 
added that it remain as an episomal structure. So that means as a as a, a self-replicating non-integrated structure. So it's a special part. It's a it's a different component. Of the, it's in the nucleus. It's contained in the in the in the rest of the genome, but it's not an integral part. Of it. And it's transmitted. Did it remain? Did it remain that way in the offspring? Did you sequence the offspring? Well, yes, we did it from from the founders, from the F zero generation to the F one, and it remained as an, an episomal. And you can simply, you know, you don't even need to to do a sequencing. You can just uh, uh, run a blot, you know, extract the DNA, and look at the at the uh, conformation of this uh, of this special sequencing using, uh, as I said, the special probe. So you detect specifically that that specific, and it's very typical because if you analyze the tail of the of the animal at different times, so you cut off a piece uh, soon after birth, you cut off uh, another piece after two or two weeks, or after one month, or after two months, and you ask the question: Is this DNA changing uh, during the the life of the animal? And the the answer is yes, it's changing. This would not happen if the DNA would be stably integrated in the genome. Once that the sequence is integrated, integrated forever. But if the sequence is not integrated, remain as an extra chromosomal or episomal, then it varies. And in fact, it's varying. And sometimes it's deleted, it disappears. Sometimes they're more stable. Sometimes after one generation or two generations or three generations are deleted. And that's not clear why sometimes it's more stable and sometimes it's not stable, but that's a factor. That's really it's a, it's a confirmation that these sequences are not integrated positive. So this means that in people there could be these um, these little parts of DNA that are not part of our main DNA sequence in the nucleus of our somatic cells. Yes, but, uh, there are a lot of. I mean, it's known that there are a lot of of, of uh, circulating DNA. For instance, the the mother. That have uh, delivered children. They have the piece of DNA of the of the children in the body circulating in the blood. I mean, it's nothing pathologist. It's, it's nothing bad. It's normal. Uh, so, uh, but there is uh, there are pieces of non-integrated in our body which does not necessarily reflect any bad or any pathology. It's just there. So what does the non-integrated DNA do? Does it get transcribed? Does it? Um... Yes. Change the phenotype of the organism. Yes, they do change the phenotype, and they do. They are transcribed. We have uh, we have done this using two uh, reported genes, beta galactose and the AGP. One is uh, it's uh, staining in blue, and the other one is staining green fluorescence. And we both found that the animals, the F1 generation and the F2 generation, the children and the grandchildren. Contain this uh, these sequences and, and some tissue. That that's one point. It's not an homogeneous uh, So there are some selective tissues, some preferential tissues. Uh, reported gene are expressed, and some others are not. And it's not clear why this uh, why this happened. But it's a, a mosaic. So some tissue are permissive. They accept this exogenous uh, sequence and they allow the sequence to be. Some other tissue do not. So, um, but uh, definitely we found issues. So what kind of functionality has this non-integrated DNA been shown to have? Can you tell? Well, they, they look like a kind of, uh, of uh, biologically active uh, 
lethargy. Although the word is not correct, lethargy. So that they behave like an informational piece of DNA or RNA to produce a trait, a gene trait, a detector, and that is not integrated. So that, um, in a way, you know, in, uh, in biotechnological terms, one could think it's a good system because you could introduce a new gene or a, a healthy gene but without perturbing the, the genome, without avoiding the risk of integrating a piece of uh, surgeon's DNA into the, the host gene. The, the host gene is always a risk. You never know where this is going. Probably now is the, is the advanced technology and specifically localized, but that was needs ago. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of big implications for this. Hmm. Very interesting. Oh, excuse me. One second. Is this Arnold? Yes, this is Arnold. Arnold, we're, you're a few minutes early. Can yes. you come back in, in five minutes? I'm just finishing. Yes. Five minutes, can you come okay. back? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Okay, please hang, please hang up and come back in five minutes. Yep, okay. Thank you, thank you. Sorry, sorry, Corrado. We'll edit that out. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. All right. Well, we'll um, <laughs> we'll uh, we had a, an, an exogenous caller come in. Um, so, all right. So, th there's a lot of. It sounds like there are tremendous implications based on yeah. what you found. Um, what what do you hope to figure out in the near future? Well, you, you, you know, um, you know that the epigenetic inheritance now it's a it's a it's a recent development of genetics and it's really changing. The our belief and our thought about uh, about biology and about in general about about genetics, and uh, this is uh, goes together with the the fact that I think that biology is entering in a, in a very exciting historical, uh, which is uh, characterized by a flow an increasing flow of novel information. And uh, you know we learn a lot about the incredible complexity of the networks that uh, modulate and uh, coordinate amazingly the genome function. Uh, the even more complex uh, uh, networks that uh, connect the neurons generating the brain function. And again, as I wrote tonight, it's a greatly expanded concept of genome. And uh, in general, I think that this uh, new fact cannot be constrained, uh, not even explained in, the, in a narrow respect to a casual or deterministic organ as we inherited from. So we think, uh, I think it is necessary um, conceptually that uh, opens uh, some novel landscape perspective uh, to be in investigated in a different way. And uh, something similar to what happened to physics is the advent of quantum. The quantum physics uh, before there. What concerns okay. my... Well, very, very, go ahead. Well, well, very good, Corrado. We're we're out of time, but what is the best way for people to get in touch or to ask questions or read your papers? Well, all my papers are on uh, on, on the Medline, or they can uh, address the mail to me, and then uh, some papers are. On... Okay, well, very good. Well, Corrado, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Freddie. Bye. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. 
In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.